Sunward Sky, Episode 2.9 Crash It was hard to pick them at first. The flood of drones across the sky were all similar. Four or six-winged copters with radio signals diverting back to any one of a number of control stations. They all had high-definition camera attachments and satellite signal GPS correction. Over the inner reaches of the Atlantic Ocean, there was now a horde of visual and location data spewing into space to be bounced around the globe. After a while, it started to become clear. The official rescue drones, which were looking across the water to identify the escape pods of the doomed spacecraft, were transmitting encrypted. When Keegan picked them up and trained in on them from his own satellite imagery, the feed would show up glitched and scrambled when he tried to run it. The news feeds and content streams were simply beaming it to anyone who would listen. The rescue drones were also methodical, each covering a certain region of the water and sky, creating a real-time map of the ocean and looking for stochastic anomalies that might represent a podfall. Once he made the connection, he was able to zoom out to see the rough, circled-packed path that the rescue drones were forming and pick the anomalies out. He'd check if the vid feeds were unencrypted and then scramble them if they were. The tale of the sunward sky unknown and uncared for ship that had suffered an onboard insurrection before destroying a GPS satellite and becoming crippled in the process had spread like a dust storm in the last few days. It was some repair craft and nobody really knew what had happened. A bunch of freelance reporters had picked up strange data packets being sent in bursts several days prior and had pieced together that the crash was coming. Once that story got out, that was it. Anyone with a drone and an uplink connection was becoming a documentarian of the fallout from something almost nobody had known, considered, or cared about, even a month prior. The very systems that the Sunward Sky helped to maintain were becoming clogged with opportunists, rubbernecking at its downfall. Keegan couldn't help but think of the communications company that had been responsible for the oversight of the crew's safety. It had been an independent control station that had helped the crew to the position they were in now, the company actually responsible for the satellite had gone completely silent and hadn't, as far as anyone knew, communicated with the Sunward Sky or the media since the news broke. He sighed, watching as the wolves of the media sent unmanned drones to gawk and punched another button to scramble the latest slot. Approximate landing locations have been received, came the call across the radio. Keegan looked out the right side of the helicopter. He could see the patchwork of drones break up and swarm eastward. What? How? Radio burst. Signed off by someone named of Meg. Looks like they're going to spread over a few hundred square kilometres. They're going to start falling in the next few minutes. I suggest you hang tight and wait for the call to rendezvous. The last thing you want is to be taken out by the pod full of people you're supposed to be rescuing. Copy that, came the reply from the cockpit of the heli. The line went dead, but then a direct connection came through for Keegan. He let it come through, and the same voice of the shore commander came across. Keegan, there's a complication to this that you might have to deal with. There are parts of a spaceship falling from the sky, Keegan thought. How many more complications can there possibly be? What kind of complication, he responded, keeping a keen eye on a new set of drones speeding fast and low across the ocean. He watched them, then pinged each transceiver at once 
and got a half a dozen unspoiled images of similar but distinct sets of waveforms which were speeding through the water. He sighed, then nuked them and watched with barely contained glee as the feeds from each one glitched out and disappeared. They careened off, and Keegan realised he hadn't been listening to what the operator had been saying. Uh, say again, over? Had some interference. Which wasn't untrue, he reasoned. The interference just wasn't his. Repeat. Most of the people on the ship are long-term spacers, which means cases of space palsy are going to be extremely prevalent. What does that mean? It means most of them aren't going to be able to stand up or walk very well. A lot of them won't be able to at all. They're all brittle from being too long in space. Keegan blanched. Are you serious? As a street fire. Now, it's not impossible that some of them will have trouble with air and blood circulation. What? I'm just saying, it's possible. Okay, and if the possible, you know, happens, what do I do? Hold on. There was a silence on the line. And when the operator got back, it sounded like they were reading from a file. Space palsy is a difficult condition to work with while on Earth. Suggest use of medicinal narcotics for pain relief and immersion tanks. Keegan couldn't believe what he was hearing. Rescue missions this far out were usually rich assholes who'd blown a hole in their private yachts or stayed out in the sun too long. He didn't have the equipment to deal with some astronaut disease. Narcotics? You want us to administer narcotics? I don't have that. We don't pack morphine on the chopper. We're lucky to have plaster strips and ibuprofen. But what the hell is an emergency tank? It's like a tank of water, I guess. You put them in it and I... you know. Okay, okay, I get the picture. I'll figure it out. He shot off the link. Immersion tanks. He looked out at the boiling ocean, devoid of life toxically saline and littered with built-up detritus from hundreds of years of mismanagement. The sun was hot enough to burn in less than ten minutes. They could immerse, sure, but they'd be poisoned by the ocean, and that's if the sea wasn't so rough as to drown them first. Over the span of six minutes, nineteen life pods had jettisoned from the sunward sky. By the time the last one had released from the hydraulic clamps that held it, The first was beginning to breach the upper atmosphere. Out of the 19, 17 made a successful atmosphere re-entry. The other two were sent careening off into space, their angle too shallow. They broke orbit and drifted into the empty void. Of those 17, three malfunctioned. The heat shielding, being as worn and cracked as it was, tore off and the friction burn of entering atmosphere at terminal velocity ripped the pods apart, flinging their occupants and their parts across the ocean. Their remains were never found. The majority of the broken, constituent parts of the pods caught fire in the atmosphere and disintegrated. Only small parts of them survived, raining specks of barely noticed dust across a world already choking with it. Three more pods came in at too steep an angle. They landed earlier than the order in which they'd fallen. The chutes broke when they were deployed to open, tearing and providing nothing but a brief halter to the descent. When they hit the water, they hit it with enough force to snap the brittle bones of every palsy-addled traveller inside. 
One of those people was war. Her final moments were defined by an all-consuming roar that mixed with her pain and overtook every one of her faculties. The impact of the craft into the water was a release. In the days to follow, the pods that no longer read life signs from afar would be recovered. The bodies would be removed. Burned. Nobody would be notified. The remaining 11 pods had breached the atmosphere at the Goldilocks angle. They'd flown straight. The ancient pods had managed to hold together, and the parachutes had neither torn nor failed to fire. Each one of them had landed in the water. Eleven out of nineteen. Meg's calculation had beaten the odds. The jerk when the parachute opened had felt like his lungs shooting into his nasal cavity, followed not long after by them being wrenched back into place by the impact of the escape pod into the water. Brett had only been in space for a few months. In that time, he'd been aware of the fact that his muscle mass was going catabolic, atrophying. His blood volume had reduced. His connective tissue and nervous system had degraded. He'd been aware of it in his head. He'd known that his service dude on Sunward Sky had presented a risk to his ability to live his life as he saw fit. The hours of his labour and his ability to function under gravity were sacrifices he had made to continue with the life that was being subsumed by the spacecraft. He'd known it was happening, but until he'd got back onto the Earth, it hadn't sunk in. He felt himself pressed into the back of the landing chair. His clothes weighed against him, as did the clasps on the safety harnesses. He felt light-headed. The reduction in blood volume was causing his peripheral vision to become murky and dark. And he'd only been in space for a few months. He looked across at Elise in the other seat. She was in far worse state than him. The couch was sunk low and her eyes were closed. The sound of the ocean lapping against the hull was dulled by the two layers of steel that had been holding the vacuum at bay. The organic nature of the sound was removed replaced with a hollow ring of dull metallic slaps. It was quieter than the sound of the ship as it was operating, which was the only reason Brett could still hear Elise's breathing. It was low, shallow, rasping noises were coming out of her mouth. He unbuckled quickly. The pressing weight of the straps clinked loudly against the edge of the seat instead of sinking gradually as he was used to. He shook his head as he sat up. The darkness at the periphery of his vision started encroaching on him, drowning out his view of Elise. He stopped moving and waited for the blood to rush back to his head. He stepped carefully out of the couch, and the pod lurched underfoot as the weight moved around in the waves. He tried to stabilise but found it was a huge effort to control the small muscles that were used to a third of a G or less. Still, he managed to stagger over, bent low to fit under the pod's tiny ceiling twitching ever closer to the bed of the last remaining members of Blackout that had been on the sunward sky. When he got to her, he didn't know what to do. Mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation? Pump on her chest in an attempt to get her heart to work harder? Try to... He didn't know. In the end, he just grabbed her hand to reassure her that someone was there. When he did, her mouth moved. He nearly missed it in the first moments, but she was saying something, 
low and urgent, repeating the same thing over and over to herself. Brett pulled himself closer to her head and turned an ear to her. Her voice was only just breaking over the gasp of her lungs. Keep breathing. Keep breathing. Keep breathing. He knelt next to her, still holding her hand. That's it. Keep breathing. Good. The seal on the outside of the pod broke. Keegan had nearly broken another hydraulic clamp in the effort to disengage it. Inside, he saw that only one of the seats was occupied. Why had they sent down so many pods only partially full? And started to climb into the final pod that had been showing any life signs at all. Halfway in, he saw that there was a second person in the pod. A man holding the hand of the woman in the crash couch, muttering a mantra of some kind to her. The woman's lips were blue, and it was hard to see whether or not she was breathing properly from where Keegan was, holding open the hatch and manoeuvring through the tiny hole. As he descended, the man seemed to suddenly register the sounds that had been happening behind him. He turned around, and his concern became a scowl almost instantly. About time, the man said, pointing urgently at the woman. We need to get her into water. Keegan shook his head. We can't do that, I'm sorry. There are immersion tanks available not too far away, but I can't put her into water. The ocean is too rough, and... How far away are the immersion tanks? He interrupted. They're onshore. Well, they're being organized by search and rescue. You don't have them? She's going to suffocate. I'm sorry, we don't have them on standby. Usually our rescue team does detox for people who have fallen in the ocean. We aren't prepared for... I'll say you're not fucking prepared, the man spat. Do you have any idea how to help her breathe, or are you just going to open the hatchway to watch us die, you fucking Terran? Keegan rocked back. The man was vitriolic. He thumbed his comm to the drone co-pilot. Yeah, hi, can we get another adrenal spike here, please? Another case of palsy. Negative, Keegan. Last kit went out with the previous pod we checked. I can call another one from shore. Good idea, Keegan responded. ETA? 15, 20 minutes. From shore? You lot are fucking useless, aren't you? Keegan ignored the remark from the man, and just turned to him and said, Is anyone else coming down? Are there any more shuttles to land? Do I need more adrenaline? He knew that there were signs that someone had broken up in the air. The man looked away from him for a moment, looked to the woman dying in her chair, hand resting gently in his. It wasn't clear if she'd make another 20 minutes. I don't think so. Healy couldn't believe it. He didn't know how many survivors there were, but there can't have been enough to fill all the pods. The final door being welded shut made it clear that whoever had been from Project Blackout had deliberately sabotaged them. Can we... unweld it? Alyssa said. Meg shook her head. Nope. We need to make it a perfect seal. We couldn't possibly test if we'd opened it without breaching the pod's containment. Oh. That had been 20 minutes ago. What had followed had been an urgent conversation about options. What were they going to do? Alyssa would have simply fallen into hopelessness, but Healy and Meg remained eminently practical. Can we manoeuvre? 
No, we don't know if we've got enough fuel reserves. We can't take the time to check it. Can we strap into our cabins? No, the ship isn't designed for landing impacts. Most of the crew had died when the first attack had happened. When this had been said, Meg was trying her hardest not to look at Healy. Can we breach the weld had already been discussed, and the only other option was driving the three of them to hot-foot it along the corridor towards the front end of the ship. Alyssa's legs were burning, and spots were starting to appear in her vision. The oxygen in this part of the ship must have been running low. Where are we going? Alyssa asked. Meg and Healy, on autopilot, had basically forgotten she was in the room. When we took off, do you remember where you were? Healy said. Alyssa could hardly forget. The problem she'd had on takeoff had resulted in a broken arm and several weeks of light duties that had been responsible both for her befriending Healy and discovering the work being done by Project Blackout. The room that she'd entered, full of crash couches. Yeah, I remember, she said, trying to keep up with them. Between feeling more and more lightheaded, in the shifting gravity, she was getting out of breath and tired. Healy and Meg seemed to be showing it too, but they were again more deft at moving in the low-G environment. Well, Healy said, the officers have a room like that, but instead of being a few levels of couches only designed for takeoff, these ones are more robust. Why's that? Alyssa said. Well, for one thing, there's fewer of them, so they could afford to put them in for a central crew like Meg here. Healy puffed as he loped along, but mainly it's because the test flights were only manned by a central crew. And when they were testing it, it was crewed entirely by Terrans. He looked at Alyssa. It's not like them to put themselves at risk. Alyssa shook her head to clear it. She was starting to find it hard to concentrate, and she tried not to think about the dwindling oxygen supply and the amount of stale breath that was beginning to build up in the air. There was something wrong with what Healy had just told her, but she couldn't grasp it while she was still moving, so she stopped in the middle of the hall. She hadn't even considered it. The idea to stop had sprung, fully formed into her mind, and she found herself falling behind Healy and Meg as they, already ahead of her, failed to notice. Hey! She called down the corridor. Her voice echoed sharply after a fraction of a second. The other two turned and rushed back to her. What is it? Meg said. Come on, we have to go. What aren't you telling me? Alyssa said. What? What do you mean? Meg said. I just... I can't think properly right now. It's affecting you faster than it's affecting us, Healy said. Oxygen is starting to wear thin, but our bodies have a lower oxygen demand because of the palsy. He held his hand out. It had always had a slight tremor, but it was now shaking quite violently as Healy began to suffer the edges of oxygen deprivation. We're telling you everything, I promise. Okay? Okay, Alyssa said, and they set off down the hall again. She still had a paranoid unease about their plan, and felt as though she was missing something. They reached the forward end of the ship, and turned right into one of the rooms just off the hallway. Suddenly, Alyssa understood what she'd been missing. They were standing in an airlock. Why can't you just put her in the water? Brett spat. Because it's toxic, the Terran said, and because it's rough. If we put her in there, she'll probably just hit her head on the pod and drown. Or she won't, and she'll die from being submerged in the ocean. If we don't do something, she's going to die anyway. 
The man nodded, then thumbed his comm. Can I get an ETA on the adrenaline shot? Behind them, Elisa's breathing was soft, desperate. Hurry up, get the suit on, Meg insisted. Elisa was still standing, dazed, in the anteroom next to the airlock. The air was noticeably thin, but there was an oxygen supply in the vac suits they were putting on. The immediate problem was the jump. Alyssa jerked herself back into motion and grabbed the door to the capsule that held the remaining parts of her vac suit. She grabbed the helmet and put it on. She fizzled absent-mindedly with the clasps on the gloves as she walked across to the small, triply-tinted glazing that looked across at the only remaining wing of the ship. She could see enormous rings in the central shaft of the ship rotating against the edge of it. Her reference point in the wing gave the impression that the central section was spinning, but in fact it was her and the second wing, visible not far from where she currently stood. It wasn't a long way to go, but it was vacuum. It was inherently fraught to make an unaided jump across. Tell me again why we can't just stop the rotation and go through the ship the way Healy and I did when we were checking engineering? Alyssa asked again. The radio chattered through the mask. It wasn't necessary to keep their communication secret any longer. There was nobody else on the ship. Because, Meg said, I don't know if doing so will knock us off track, and if we go off course at this point, I don't know if I can get us back with the fuel reserves that we have. She'd suited up far faster than Alyssa had been able to. Healy had as well, though that was in part due to his carabiner-laden suit being ready for minor adjustments to make it airtight at all times. The two of them turned to her. Alyssa's head was beginning to swim a bit less now that the supply in the suit was feeding her oxygen-starved brain. She nodded. They couldn't stop the ship from what it was doing now, as it was modelled in the descent. The act of slowing and stopping the rotation of the wings could mean that its course got disrupted. It made sense now. It hadn't before, as she gasped to keep up in the corridor. She patted her pocket. The container of homemade pills was still there. It wasn't the ideal way to have her to check whether or not her medical research was working, but a dramatic re-entry to gravity was likely to be more than enough to demonstrate. Before that, though, the airlock in front of her hissed as Healy wound the wheel to open it. Alyssa tried not to think of where she'd found Isa, broken and empty in a place just like this at the under end of the ship. She tried to control her breathing as she stepped through. You can do this. All right, listen here, Meg said. This is a free flight. We don't have any guy lines or safety devices that stretch far enough to get to the next wing. So we're going to be jumping. We're jumping from here to an equivalent room across the other side. She pointed across. Following her hand, Alyssa saw a rounded rectangle and blackened glass door on the other side. It's important to... Listen to me. It's really important that you don't aim directly at the door when you jump. We're spinning. If you jump straight across it, the Coriolis effect will get you and you'll spend the rest of your life in the vacuum. She checked her oximeter. Which will be around an hour and a half before you suffocate. Alyssa checked her own oxygen supply. An hour and 26 minutes, it said. So, to counteract the Coriolis effect, you have to aim below the door, so that by the time you reach it, the wing has spun down to meet you. She lowered her hand, 
indicating just below the bottom edge of the ship's wing to a mess of steel sections and joints. Aim for there. It should give you plenty of room and allow you to slightly misjudge without being a catastrophe. Are you ready? Alyssa nodded, then realised she was facing away from Meg in a helmet. She couldn't see her. Yes, she confirmed. Healy did the same. Alright. Meg slammed the airlock cycle. A rushing sound permeated the room as air evacuated and the hatch opened. Alyssa blanched. Removing the skin that stood between herself and the vacuum was an immediate and visceral thing. The suit seemed to puff up as the internal air pressure I lost on the outside resistance to hold it in equilibrium. Healy, you go, then Alyssa, and I'll follow behind. A thump in her chest grew louder, almost drowning out the sound of the ship's systems emanating through her feet. Healy turned and pointed once again at the spot below the ship's wing, then crouched and jumped. Alyssa watched him leave the doomed ship and contemplated for a moment why she still seemed to think it represented safety. So long as she felt the thrum beneath her, it was fine, it was safe, and nothing could go wrong. Except that wasn't true at all. The ship was doomed, and it was only familiarity and the mammalian expectation to be on the ground holding her there. She crouched, holding herself against the wall of the ship until Healy had a couple of metres clearance and felt the silence and absolute stillness envelop her as she, too, sprang into the void. She'd aimed at the right place, and she watched the wing nearby rise again to meet her. Behind it, she could see the cosmos laid out, the infinite and the divine spinning dizzyingly around. The open brace of the Earth's curvature framed the entirety of the rest of existence. She was a moat, a speck, leaping with nothing but blind hope between a gap in a creation of other insignificant creatures such as herself. All the things she'd been doing, her fight for survival, the stress of Project Blackout sabotage, the problems with engineering, and the ship, and ground control, and everything. It was all so small in comparison to the broken convalescence of reality that lay in unwarped majesty in front of her. The universe didn't care about them. They only had each other. She looked back at the wing of the ship and watched the hatchway rise back to her. As she watched it rising smoothly, it jerked, and the entirety of the ship lurched away from her. Healy hit the door and bounced until he frantically grabbed a handhold, but he had shifted out of reach in only the few seconds since the lurch had happened. Shit, Meg said over the comlink. The final jettison. Alyssa span around again and realized what had happened. Meg had moved the timing of the jettison to higher in the descent, to move the ship's crash zone offshore and away from the land. In their hurry to escape, they'd forgotten about that change happening, and the jettison had moved the ship's trajectory mid-jump. Shit, Alyssa thought. The door screamed past her, and the base of the wing was rapidly approaching. She was still a metre away, and the wing was starting to slow down relative to her approach. Any second it would reach its zenith and she wouldn't be able to reach it at all. She stuck her arm out, trying to find one of the rails that the crew had attached to the guy rails to. She fought the urge to close her eyes as she stretched herself as far as she could go, 
willing herself forward into space and wishing she had some meaningful way of changing her trajectory. Her palm was open, and the rail hit her in the second joint of her fingers. She hooked her fingers around it, and felt the bottom half of her body swing around its new fulcrum. She slammed into the steel outer hole, and felt a sharp pain in her leg, but she didn't care. She'd made it. Alyssa! Meg called over the radio, and Alyssa spun to look. Meg's approach was even more off course than hers, and she was set to sail a metre and a half from the front of the spacecraft and into the void Alyssa had been admiring mere seconds before. She was scant metres away. Poised as she was, there was no way Alyssa was going to be able to reach. Her arm span wasn't nearly good enough, and the rail was at an awkward angle. She folded herself up, and reached down with her foot. The rail stuck a few inches from the surface of the spacecraft and had a gap between it. Without thinking, Alyssa jammed her boot into the space and turned 90 degrees to spin away from the sunward sky, lock her foot in, and stood up into nothing, throwing her hands up into the air. Meg had seen this and was reaching down to where Alyssa had hooked herself to the side of the spacecraft. Meg caught Alyssa on her forearm and Alyssa pulled her down, trying to mitigate the rotational inertia from the force of the woman she was connected to. She bent her knee back, giving with the movement of the ship and holding on as Meg slammed into the hull. A crack appeared in Meg's helmet and rapidly cooling air exploded outward in a hissing puff of cold steam. Get inside, Alyssa! Go! Meg said, letting go of Alyssa's arm and grabbing another guy rail. She was on the outside of the wing, which was the floor of the interior of the ship, and so was being thrown outward by the centripetal force. Likewise, Alyssa had to climb upward toward the centre of the ship, toward the hatchway. Healy was crouched in the airlock, laying on the ground above her and reaching down. She ignored his hand and climbed the extra few feet pouring herself into the mirror of the hatch she'd escaped mere moments before. A few moments later, Meg's arm appeared over the edge of the airlock entrance, and both she and Healy grabbed her to pull her onto the deck. Her helmet was still hissing and ice crystals were forming around the brake, fogging up the vision panel and steaming up her breath. She pulled her leg to the side just in time for the door to slam shut and the airlock to begin its cycle again. Alyssa leaned against the wall, glad again for the relative safety of the ship. The sound of the world around her came back as the hissing of the small volume of remaining air came back into the room. Meg's helmet smashed as she tore it from her head and threw it against the wall. Fuck, she said. I can't believe I forgot about the fucking jettison. Healy and Alyssa said nothing. After the relative normalcy of the amount of air in the vac suits, the sharp, stale taste of the failing systems on the ship were all the more bitter. They were gasping for breath, but each felt more insubstantial than the last. Come on, Meg said. The emergency pods are this way. The inner door to the airlock opened, and the trio ran again down the hallway. This time, the door they entered was on the interior of the ship. Alyssa recognised the functions of the room, but not the form. She'd been in the crash room like this several months ago, back, before, when she'd been do- trying to do nothing but help the people who had to live their lives on a ship like this. Back when her confusion and haste during the launch had resulted in her breaking her arm during liftoff. That room had been Spartan, with badly maintained launch beds and fittings. 
The crew had been crammed in side by side, with the tacit implication of their expendability writ in the broken amenity and cold air. By contrast, this room was relatively well appointed. All the equipment was still old and poorly maintained, but it was obvious that at some point it had been, if not luxurious, then at least well equipped. The launch couches were more solid, robust. They were spaced farther apart. They had a suite of disconnected wiring that suggested an entertainment pod of some sort had been connected. It was an opulence long discarded in favour of the pure utility expected of a ship of the Sunward Sky's ilk. Systems ripped out, services and infrastructure degraded and ignored to the point of failure. That which had been whole had been slowly mined from the inside to extract all value until, flimsily, it could still work, but only just. Wordlessly, Healy, Alyssa, and Meg found a crash couch each. They strapped themselves in, and they waited. The air grew thinner around them, and Alyssa felt the stale feeling grow, like a slick on her skin, while she tried not to think about the orbit of the ship degrading. She dug in her pocket and pulled out the pills. The reason she'd come here in the first place. They were chalky, fuzzy, vague. It was a leap of faith to come here, or something like it. They were white and bright, not like the froth and dark that was beginning to encroach on her vision. The ship roared, but was it getting louder? Was it the engine? or the noise of atmosphere she heard, rushing against the hull. She put the pills next to her. The ship was crying, or screaming. Millions of parts in harmony torn apart by a single act of cruel violence perpetuated by a cascading set of failures. Relax, she thought. Sunward sky is falling earthward. You won't need to worry about your fate in the floating void. Soon. She shook her head to clear it, and failed. The sound from the hull was definitely there now. A cacophony. A lullaby. Alyssa closed her eyes.